All right, it's my pleasure to be up here again. Uh, it's only been a week since we've been in So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me today to Philippians 4, we're going to continue on in that in the series of, of Philippians. And uh, for those of you that were here for adult Sunday school, you'll, you'll see a lot of similarities in some of the things that Paul, this Paul was talking about this morning, not Paul. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, there's, was, there's was a lot of good uh, similarities and ways from that. So um, if you want to bow with me in, in prayer first, Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for that ability to worship you, to praise you. Father, I need to heed my own words from my message this morning, and I need to come to you in prayer for the things that cause me anxiety and stress, that I want to be able to handle your word rightly and appropriately. Father, calm my heart. Give me the things to say that would be honoring to you, that comes from your word and not from me, and that I would be able, through your word, to glorify you. And Father, we just ask that these things would also be edifying to those that are here, uh, that they would uh, find benefit in the find applicable meaning to their own lives uh, through Paul's letter to the Philippians. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to be focusing on the first half of Philippians 4. Um, I, I pray that uh, this has been, I found it somewhat challenging for myself. I find it always uh, challenging as I dive into God's Word and preparing for, uh, for teaching or for a sermon. And I hope that you will also find it beneficial today. So let's first read Philippians 4 verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Eudocia and Sinke to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Stand, and I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And in the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, Perhaps if you recall from last week, Steve already kind of covered the first verse in his benediction. 
because it really wraps up Paul's train of thought, I think, from, from chapter 3. And in many of your Bibles, you'll actually see it's kind of grouped in with, with chapter 3. Um, but he's referencing the beloved brethren who he's writing this letter to, who he longs to see, and he's encouraging them to stand firm in the Lord in this way. Meaning that he has just referenced this earlier in chapter 3. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. If you happen to miss last week, you, I encourage you to go back and listen to, to Steve's sermon on Mixler, YouTube, or on Spotify. Um, and check out what he's uh, already covered there. I also want to warn you and apologize in advance as I uh, always try to form my thoughts from Paul's letter here and who he's writing to. Uh, to these beloved, the brethren, the people in this church. But I often catch myself in in writing my sermon that uh, he's addressing this letter to myself or to us as a congregation. So if you hear me using the different different terms there, I apologize in advance. Um, So for the remainder, I'll be speaking particularly verses from 2 to 9. And maybe some of you like outlines. I, I sometimes like an outline. So the, the three kind of main topics you're going to see me covering throughout these, these sections are admonishment, encouragement, and instruction. So even though Paul is specifically writing to the church in Philippi, uh, he may as well be writing to our church, to you and to me. The things in which Paul wrote um, and Epaphrodites delivered in this letter along Uh, the journey from Rome to Philippi are just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. I think the first sources of encouragement uh, that we can see out of this passage is that we're living in a different day, a different time, and a different age. And I think we should be grateful and and can attribute that to common grace. Uh, The methods of communication has advanced so much since that time and, and that he is And I think this is definitely an encouragement, um, and I think we should be thankful for. Uh, But Paul, uh, or those folks that delivered Paul's letter, Epaphrodites, he had to travel about 800 miles, probably taking six to eight weeks. And he had just been uh, recovered from being ill, just to kind of give you a bit of context of uh, this is not like just clicking, clicking send on a text or an email to get this letter. So there was no doubt a sense of excitement and joy when the church received this communication in the form of a letter being delivered uh, by Epaphrodites after a a long and likely difficult journey. First, that he had recovered enough to make the journey after being sick to the point of death, which is uh, captured in in chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, Second, that he made the journey in the truest sense of snail mail, that it it took so long. Um, And thirdly, that there uh, were no doubt devouring the words of Paul in this letter. However, it can't be easy to read verse 2, particularly if you're one of those ladies. It is also a humble warning to those others in the church, as they no doubt are privy to the situation in which Paul is speaking of. If if, uh, word of their disagreement and their behavior had made it all the way back to Rome, uh, where Paul was in prison, It is concerning enough for him to write to the believers about their behavior. Yodaya and Syntyche are urged to live in harmony in the Lord. So, as per my outline, this is uh, one of Paul's admonishments. Um, 
It's obviously directed to these two women's behavior, which in most likely uh, is towards each other, but it could be taken as they need to live in harmony amongst the greater body of the church. Word had gotten back to Paul that these two ladies were not living in harmony, so much so that he needed to include it in their letter and say to, to each of them separately. He's not just urging them and including both of their names and saying this you know, this person and this person, right? It's not like talking to, saying, I urge Tyson and Danny. He's, he's drawing a little bit more, I'm sorry guys, I didn't warn you. But he's, I know you two always fight. But he's, he's drawing a little bit more emphasis on the fact that he's saying, I urge you Tyson and I urge you Danny to live in harmony in the Lord. He's also going a step further to say that they should live in harmony in the Lord. So it's not just a secular style, style of harmony that we're all just getting along and we're friendly towards one another and amicable to the point of smiling and waving. He's telling the two of them to be at harmony in the Lord. The ESV states it as Paul entreats them to agree in the Lord. He's pleading with them out of love, separately and asking them to agree. Not just in the sense of getting along in which chili recipe they like, whether it should have mushrooms or if it should have corn. Um, but more, more importantly, in the concerns of the things of the Lord, potentially their actions within the church and how it reflects the gospel. Let's see what Paul has to say a few pages back in his, in, in his letter. So if you want to turn back with me to chapter 2. should be fresh in our memories. It wasn't that long ago. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So I think that depending on how long it takes to read his letter and, and if they do it all at once or if they've broken it up, um, I don't think I need to summarize what we just read in Paul's, because uh, Paul said it really well in his own words. Um, but he's just getting at a few, uh, a few minutes later in here, he lays it out quite clearly. Um, and I think what he means to be living at harmony in the Lord or to agree in the Lord. So as we, we look at chapter, th- or sorry, verse 3 now, this is who he's talking to. Indeed, true companion, I ask you, also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here Paul is asking for some help from his true companion. I don't think we know for sure who he's referencing here. Some sources believe the the Philippians may have known who he was referencing in that circle of, of believers. Others seem to think that uh, this could be someone named Sidzagos, or a leader in the church like an elder, because that's what the, the root word of that, 
the, the, the meaning of that word means. Together, uh, the root of the word means being yoked together, doing the work in unison together as a team. But that he's addressing, uh, those that he is addressing likely have a very good visual of what that, that term is alluding to. I think for some of us, it's, it's lost in our day and age and our culture. Uh, doing the work together as a team, um, he's likely seeking the help of this individual. If we look back to another illustration of being yoked together in 2 Corinthians uh, 6.14. So if you want to turn with me there for a moment. 2 Corinthians 6.14. And here he's using it as a, as a negative example. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Again, most of us have heard and read this verse that we should not be unequally bound together uh, or literally yoked together in this context, meaning spiritually, the principle is it's really well suited for us in the context and text of, of um, Philippians. So back in, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but um, back in Deuteronomy 22.10, it says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey. Uh, this is part of the sundry laws. So it's being unequally yoked with those two different types of animals. Uh, and it's kind of for two reasons. Then an ox and a donkey. Um, an ox was a clean animal and a donkey was unclean. So they are different in that way uh, in God's perspective. Uh, and they're also uh, so much of a different animal that uh, with unequally matched temperament and they even pulled differently uh, and which would result in crooked rows. So looking back to our, our main text in, in Philippians 4, Paul is asking the help of this co-laborer in the faith, someone that he considers himself attached or bound to in order to help these two women who he obviously cares a lot about. They have shared in his struggle of the cause of the gospel along with other men by the name of Clement. Uh, and he's nowhere else mentioned again in scripture. Um, and the rest of Paul's fellow co-workers whose names are found in the book of life. So despite the, the admonishment, Paul is quick to point out that he values these two women. He has worked alongside them. He considers them fellow believers and therefore he wants the best for them. And now he's encouraging them. It is a reminder that the two, that it's a re, sorry, it's a reminder that the work of the gospel being harmonious in the Lord is of the utmost importance and cannot take a back seat to division or disunity amongst fellow believers in the church in Philippi or in the broader global church of believers in the faith. So throughout Throughout today's message, I'm going to try and circle back to some of the sections rather than wait to all the to, to the end and, and try to find application for, for each of us. And I always call it the so what uh, from Steve Lawson. It's the what does this mean for, for us? I think it demonstrates God's importance that he's placed on occasional admonishment and, and the fact that it may be required. In this case, when it comes to unity and harmony in the body of believers, 
But we should not get discouraged because we have to stay focused on the ultimate goal, which is spiritual unity. Sharing the gospel work within the local body of the church, sharing our gifts amongst one another for the greater good of the church and glorifying God by what he's displaying his attributes amongst one another as we represent who Christ is. But most importantly, what he has done for each of us, each of us sitting here and listening today. If you are found in the book of life, then you have assurance, this particular assurance that Paul is speaking about, and we must share this yoke of the work. So let this be our encouragement. So let's move on to chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So what are we rejoicing about? Well, I think Paul could be rejoicing about the God-honoring work that he just requested from his true companion in the verse before and, and Clement and the fellow workers. He also may be reminding them to rejoice in the Lord at the opportunity that they have to serve in the Lord. These are both reasonable reasons to rejoice. But I think most likely Paul is rejoicing and instructing them to rejoice in the Lord regarding those believers and the fact that their names are found in the book of life. The Lord is the true reason to rejoice. Rejoice in Him. That is the true reason that we should all have true joy and the reason to rejoice. That is the, the reason that we, um, we can have peace despite a lack of harmony or strife that we are facing amongst each other. They were to rejoice that they are found in the book of life, due not in part, but in whole, because of the finished work of Christ. Paul stresses this by repeating himself before moving on to give further instruction in, in verse 5. So here in verse 5, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Here Paul is instructing us to be gentle. A gentle spirit to be known by all men. The, the ESV um, states that this is to be reasonableness to known, known to all men. And uh, the LSB interprets it as, Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. This verse seems a bit of a, a transition or a segue into another train of thought here in a moment for Paul. Uh, it could be read independent or connected to the previous verses in his instruction. He may be telling this to the same group, his true companion Clement and his fellow believers, to urge the two ladies to be in harmony, but to do so in a gentle spirit, a considerate spirit, with a sense of reasonableness. And even though the content and intent of Paul's letter may spread to the ladies named here, uh, or they would hear the letter being read perhaps in an open forum, Paul is careful to add the how in which it should be done. They were to model Christ-like character and his attributes. Jesus in the, in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. We can correct and rebuke someone and encourage them in gentleness. We can stand firm in the truth of God's word, but do so in gentleness. And we can even be right in gentleness. 
but we cannot be living up to God's expectations and filling, fulfilling who we are called to be if we are not doing so in gentleness. This is an area, I'm going to be honest, of failure for me. I often fail to communicate in a spirit of gentleness or in a considerate way, even though at the time I think I'm being the reasonable one. Gentleness describes three attitudes. A submission of the will of God, teachability, and consideration of others. So again, the so what? Paul is telling them and encouraging them and reminding them. The period at the end of this sentence or statement was not just punctuation, but exclamation. The Lord is near. He paused. He wanted to make that clear. Or at least the translators of these, these uh, the Bibles have added that, that punctuation. Perhaps in closeness of, of spirit to those who are believers, as the Spirit dwells in us, Paul is likely alluding to Christ's return and how close at hand it is. And because he is so near, so close at hand, I think this is his segue into the next section. for uh, Verse 6. So let's read verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is telling us that we are to be anxious for nothing. He doesn't just stop there, but rather tells us what we should be doing instead. Uh, It's not just a, a Bob Newhart psychology moment here in a segment where he says just to stop it. Um, Paul actually tells them what they should be doing instead of, rather than just being anxious. So let's just look at anxious. Paul knows the church there. He knows that who his fellow believers are, the brethren, and he's not telling them to be anxious a little less. Stop worrying about the big things like potential persecution of believers or a division in the church or... Maybe on the flip side, stop worrying about the little things and it's okay to worry about the bigger things. He's not doing that. He says, he's making it quite clear, he says to be anxious for nothing. So I think this is a good opportunity for for each of us to pause and ask ourselves the so what. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for the application that we put for ourselves here? We may be often quick to read or hear a portion of Scripture and gloss over it, not really thinking too much about it or how it could or should apply to our lives. I want each of you to think right now for a moment, what are the things that you are anxious about? For the things or about things, most of which, or at least some of it, is beyond our control. I just want you to hold on to that thought for a moment. We're going to come back to it. So if we're not supposed to worry, stress, fret, or be anxious, all of which is a, is a form of ourselves trusting in our own abilities, our independence, our self-righteousness, then we're obviously not trusting in God. If you turn back with me to Matthew for a moment. Matthew 6. Matthew 6. 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep going back and back because we could do that. But it, the first, and we're gonna start in in chapter or sorry, verse 25, chapter six, verse 25. And just before he's talking about wealth, do not do not store up wealth. Uh, you can't serve two masters of wealth or or God. Then in, in verse 25 it says, "For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on it." Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow and nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you are being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow will be thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of, you of little faith... Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that, all your, that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Christ tells us not to be worrying about our own life that he's going to provide food and drink. He gives the example of the birds and how he provides for them, but we are worth much more. We can't add an hour to our lives by worry or anxiety. He talks about our clothing and how he provides. He gives an example of the flowers in the field and the grass of the field, uh, which is only alive today and in the furnace tomorrow. He talks about the Gentiles or the world culture they worry and seek after these things jesus reminds them your heavenly father knows that you need all these things so here he's saying to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you again we are seeking according to his will and then he will provide i keep losing my bookmark here back to back to philippians please got to make use of this fancy ribbon here. So again, like Paul's admonishment back in um, 4 verse 6, he goes right into instruction here. We are supposed to go to God in everything by prayer and supplication. So prayer could be considered uh, a generalized overarching prayer, while supplication could be a more specific request, a humble pleading a request or a petition. So a prayer of supplication is asking God for something. It's a specific aspect of prayer because prayer covers all aspects of communication to the triune God. For example, a few examples are a petition on behalf of others, a prayer of dependence or adoration, confession, intercession, thanksgiving, and supplication. 
We are to have a dependence on God for all things through prayer and thanksgiving. And we are supposed to be doing so at all times without ceasing. We are to go to God regarding these things that may cause us worry and anxiety, and we are to do it in a manner of prayerful spirit of uh, a prayerful spirit of thanksgiving. We should be already approaching God with the spirit of thanksgiving when we are making our requests in anticipation of our, our prayers being answered as a result of our prayers or God answering our prayers in spite of our motives, despite of our prayers. God reacts or intercedes based not on our will or our request, but in his sovereignty, according to his will, because we may not have been making our requests with motives according to his will. And I think Paul, in the front row here, was alluding to that in his Sunday school message. Based on, based on how long we've been a believer, we may be asking for things in, out of a selfish motive or intent when we're a new believer, but as we've been sanctified for, for years and perhaps decades and we're in God's word, we start to understand what his true nature and desires are for us. And our prayers start to align more and more with his will. So around the room, there may be things that we are stressing about, worrying about, or things, circumstances, or people which are causing us anxiety. Uh, So in the spirit of Paul's admonition, and of course with my newfound gentleness that I've been finding in this scripture, uh, but yet in the firmness of Bob Newhart, just stop it. Stop having that anxiety. If you're worrying about finances, be anxious for nothing. Constantly or with, and without ceasing, go to our Father in prayer and supplication. And be thankful while you're at it. Your answered prayer may not be everything that you want, but God will provide everything that you need according to his will. If you're stressed out about school or maybe even teaching your own school at home, pray for that wisdom. The ability to focus, to work hard. Pray that the work that you are doing will be honoring to God in your diligence and that it will also be glorifying to Him. If you are worried about health, for some unknowns that you may be facing, some test results, some fear of a serious diagnosis, perhaps you're healing and recovering, or you're worried about a long-term prognosis. Go to the Lord in prayer. If you're worried about work or your ability to provide for your family, having enough for retirement, or if and when you are no longer no longer able to work or to provide, or perhaps you're worried about friendships or old friends, new friends, having a true and close friend. How about what should be your closest friend, your spouse? Having a true Uh, or sorry, you may be single and you stress about finding the right one. Maybe your anxiety is, is due to the current situation with your spouse and the difficult season you're in. Your distress may be about it lasting and going the distance. If you're worried about family relationships and reconciliation or acceptance, perhaps you're worried about your children, their health, their ability or sorry, your ability to have children now or in the future. Or when you have children, will they be healthy? Will they be healthy physically, mentally, 
and spiritually. We worry about their salvation. On the surface, it looks like a noble concern that you may have felt justified in your worry, after all. But you could not ask for a more noble cause than that. To worry. It's a little quote for some of you may have caught that. So me just saying some of these things, unfortunately, I may have caused some of you to worry in the last few minutes, and I'm sorry, but just stop it. Paul's instruction for us all is to go for all of that with prayer and supplication, along with thanksgiving in that moment. That means right as you're making the prayer request, it should be with a heart and a spirit of thanksgiving. We don't wait until we find out the results of our prayer. I think if, if you were like most of us, uh, we often have trouble trusting God's sovereignty when we make our prayer requests of what he's actually going to fulfill regarding of what we're asking for. It's difficult for us to sometimes understand God's wisdom, nature, divine purpose uh, throughout his sovereign will. However, we should be rejoicing in that. So in this section, we see the the nothing and the everything. So if we were doing a, a sermon just on this verse, this is what I would title it, nothing and everything. Nothing for us to be anxious. We should be none of we should have no anxiousness in regards to things relationships situations the past the present the future and the the flip of that the flip side of that should be the instruction everything should be handled with prayer all things all relationships all situations all of the what ifs and if it gives you anxiety you need to pray and the result is peace We put our trust in the sovereignty of God, not only for our salvation through Christ's shedding of his blood on the cross, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's further back in Philippians 1.6. Having a peace is a result of trusting in God. And that's the transition into verse 7. So let's read verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we see here the word and, it ties it to the previous verse, so we know it's, it's connecting right, right away. And that Paul's thought continues here. So we see the peace of God, and by God is produced through God, and it's through the Holy Spirit. We can have peace knowing that we are praying according to his command, his will. We know what his will is. The more that we know him, the longer that we know him, the more that we know him by his word, the more we are sanctified in the spirit, becoming more and more in the likeness of Christ. It is these things that we can be confident in that we are praying more in accordance to his will. We will have peace knowing that God's answer to prayer will be in the best Sorry, we will have peace knowing that God's answer to prayer will be in the best interest of our lives, both in the temporal and the eternal perspective. He's going to give us what is required, but maybe not what is desired by us. Trusting in God's sovereignty and knowing that he is in control, that will give us peace. Peace knowing of our justification through Christ's atonement, that will give us peace. 
a clear conscience knowing that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, peace knowing that we will spend our eternal days glorifying him and worshiping him for what he has done for us. So let that sink in for a moment. True peace. Eternal peace. Eternal joy. Peace is in the presence of our King and our Savior. That is the only way that we can get that level of peace which surpasses all comprehension. It is truly hard to fathom that. Despite our efforts, despite our knowledge of God's Word, despite maybe decades of being a believer, this peace will be beyond anyone's comprehension. And just saying that out loud, knowing that one day will come, it adds an extra of measure peace while I was writing this and right now saying it out loud. Even though that seems very far away, an eternity spent with God. But in the here and now, we can take comfort in knowing that this peace will guard our minds in Christ Jesus. It is through Him and the Spirit working in our hearts that this type of peace is beyond all comprehension. It's available to us and it will protect us. It will protect our hearts and our minds against that fear, the stress, anxiety, and worry. So let's continue on to verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. He's starting to conclude his epistle, his letter, by, in this section by stating finally. He's, he's kind of wrapping up here. Uh, he's also making it known again that this is being written to the brethren, believers in Christ. He's calling on the believers in the church to godly living and obedience. He's listing here a set of virtues that they are to dwell on or think about or consider. So right at the end of, of verse 8, it says to dwell on these things. We are to ponder that deeply or even meditate on it. We need to marinate in these, soak on them, chew on them. Let it percolate until it be, has become strong enough like church coffee. When believers are thinking on these godly attributes, then we are not thinking on the things that are ungodly. It's hard to stay stuck in the muck and the mire of a stinking swamp if we refuse to stay there. That swamp can represent a stagnant pond or a slough of neutrality, where you try to balance on the edge of a fence that separates good and filth. We must be deliberate and take immediate steps to get out. Crawl if we must, but we've got to get out of the swamp, up onto the shore, onto the firm ground of truth, which has already been defined by the one who created us, who has called us, and who has justified us. We must think upon the sweet fragrances found upon the shore. The grass is green up there, soft between, between, uh, beneath our feet. The smells are good, the flowers and the trees are beautiful. The people there are dignified, the animals are clean and healthy. Butterflies flutter, flutter and birds chirp and sing. The food is nourishing and beneficial. This is where we are to be. Think on these things. 
So whatever is true, let's, let's go through some of these here. Culture and society today make claims that you can defy, define or decide truth on your own. However, as believers, our source of truth is God himself. His character, his nature, his word is all true. Every word, every verse, every chapter. Do not dwell on the things of this world which are counter to this. Lies and falsehood, that is what we are being told. Things that are wrapped up in a package that culture around us says that it's okay. We should be tolerant of, accepting of. It may be their truth. But beneath the packaging and the disguise, there still lies untruth, deceit, and deception. The packaging only hides it for so long before the smell starts to permeate the facade of the packaging and the waft comes out of it and those with a discerning nose will be able to smell the off-putting odor of lies. We need to dwell on truth. Whatever is honorable or just, this is God's holy standard. To be holy is to be right to be just, to be observing divine laws, keeping the commands of God. This needs to be an inward assessment for oneself, not just an outward or superficial appearance. Those things that are truly right and just, consider these things. Whatever is pure, Paul touched on this this morning, undefiled, free from blemish or sin, no impurities, that refinement of gold. All these things which is impure has been refined out and removed. Other verses in the New Testament give a sense of a clean and pure heart, not yet contaminated by the surroundings. An innocence. We need to dwell on whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely, acceptable and pleasing. These that are acceptable and pleasing things to the Lord. And we move on to what is of good repute or commendable. Others that are in the world are going to view this as kind and courteous and sounding well. It's generally a a thought of being well thought of. And then I move on to if there is any excellence. Moral goodness. The Greek, arete is only listed four times in the New Testament, and I covered that earlier in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. I'll just read it. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. This is really a standard of, of perfection and godliness. It's a true virtue that is reflected of God's glory and nature. He is being defined as being having glory and excellence. These are hard, hard things to live up to, but these are the things that we are to be dwelling on, to think on. And if anything worthy of praise, again, we are drawn to the notion of a standard which is worthy of God. I think truly only God is worthy to be praised. Many of the same references regarding praise in the New Testament often are paired with a description of God's glory. They're often used together. Glory and praise. Praise and glory. And this is a virtue that is reflective of God's glory and His nature. 
to praise him is, is an expression of honor to hold in high esteem. So that was what we were supposed to think on or dwell on. Now let's move on to chapter or verse 9, sorry. And now we're going to talk about the things that we need to put into practice. So verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So now Paul is, is starting to strut his stuff. He's, he's exuding his authority. He knows that he has the ability to say these things. So he's, he's providing instruction here, but he's also telling them that he's leading by example and it's okay for, him, for them to follow his example. They're to follow the things that they have learned from him, that they have received from him, that they have heard and seen. So in him, Paul, that they should now practice these things, do them, live them out in real life, practice them in private, in public, on the street, and in church, in school, and in work. Practice them amongst other believers in the faith. Practice them amongst unbelievers as to strengthen your testimony and be blameless as you represent Christ. Do these things that Paul has been demonstrating in various ways. It may not have been something that they personally seen by Paul. They may have learned about it through others. His message through a letter such as this that he is writing them. The God of peace, which he mentioned before, will be with you. The Holy Spirit dwells within each believer. The Spirit provides the means and the ability to live out these godly attributes and be able to put them into practice. The Spirit in us now provides life to which we were once dead. Oh, the peace of God we ought to give him praise for. Thankfulness and gratitude for his mercy and his grace. So again, the so what. In this last section of godly attributes, it should be a moral compass as we live our lives. It should be the measuring stick by which we build our lives. These verses should guide us as we make decisions hourly and daily, both in thought and deed. If what is before us, it doesn't meet these standards, then likely our conscience will be tender, and so it should impact our choices. Should I watch this movie? Should I click on the clickbait? What would that podcast really be about? Is that a book that I should read? These words I'm about to say, should I say them? I need to stop thinking about what I'm thinking right now. I think you get the idea. We struggle with this all the time, or at least we should be. All of you finding yourself in this swamp. If you're there in the swamp right now, or when you find yourself in the quiet at home, walk out, crawl out, yell for help. We have an opportunity as believers, especially those who are not just new in the faith, as Paul is encouraging other believers. We have opportunity, obligation, and responsibility to be spiritually influencing those around us. Our spouses, our children, our friends, 
other believers in the church, and to a lesser extent being able to demonstrate to unbelievers in the world around us who know of our faith. We do not want to misrepresent God, the work that Christ has done in us, so we should endeavor and strive to practice these things. The Holy Spirit inside of us will convict us to live by this standard, to be weary of sin, to have a desire to please God. We would do well to listen and stop ignoring His leading. That help by the Helper is available to all who are justified by faith, saved by the atoning blood of Jesus. So now I ask you, are you in the book of life? Are you able to rejoice? Is this letter essentially written to you also, brethren? Will God hear your prayers? Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you? Do you have the peace of God? If you are unsure, or if you've never put your trust and faith in the work of Christ, I encourage you to deal with that today. God, by His Word, may be calling you today. Don't ignore Him. Call out to Him in repentance. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus who died for you. He took your sin. He took it to the cross. He died a death He didn't deserve because He was perfect and sinless. He took your sin and paid the ultimate price, and in turn, He places His righteousness onto your account so that you will be found blameless on judgment day. This is the double imputation. A legal credit is passed or imputed. Your sin is imputed to Christ, and in turn, His righteousness or perfectness is imputed or credited to your account. Once this happens, you are made right and just before God. Then, you too can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. If you close with me in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for what you have done, that you have sent your Son to die for each of us, that all we have to do is, is repent of our sins that we have committed against you, we have to put our faith and trust in your Son and the work that he has done, the blood that has been shed on our behalf. Father, we don't take that for granted. Help us to remember the things that we are supposed to do, the way that we are supposed to think, the things that we are supposed to consider our lives and our actions and, and the measuring stick and the way that we make decisions. And then help us to put these into practice so that not just our thoughts, but our actions would be glorifying to you and that you would receive our praise. We ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.